Yeah, it's raining. <laughs> ah, wow. Actually, that feels good. It's been such a long day. I think the rain makes it feel more fresh. That's good. Ah. Well, hello. Welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. I'm not even going to check whether it's going live or not. I do that every single day. And I'm just going to assume that it's working. If you can't hear me, you can't see me. <laughs> What's new? Um, it's 6 o'clock and every day we go live by reading four passages of the Bible. My name is Calvin. This is live from my apartment here in Cambridge in the UK. And today we're looking at four passages. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, Matthew chapter 11, Nehemiah chapter 1, and Acts chapter 11. Quite a mix of Old and New Testament passages. Let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you that you cause the rain to fall on the righteous and on the unrighteous, and the godly on the ungodly. You pour out your grace on all of us, for you are a gracious God. And Lord, please would you pour out your Spirit upon us as we read your word. Please refresh us with it. I, I think I need that. Please remind us with it about your goodness, of your abundant blessing that comes to us especially through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. So tired. So tired. I could sleep. You know, I could honestly, you know, no need for dinner, no need for, I could just go to sleep right now and wake up tomorrow and just start the day. I, I've, I've <laughs> expended enough energy today. Part of that problem is coffee. You know, the discovery of coffee, <clears throat> these for me is a new thing, thanks to Mr. Joel Chin and his sending me that very kind gift. Thank you so much. But it's affected my, you know, body chemistry. So now I'm so tired at the end of the day. But yes, you're supposed to read the Bible. What am I doing? I haven't even opened up the tabs. So, oh, I'm so unprepared today. So Genesis chapter 12. What, what are we looking at? Genesis chapter 12. Can you see this? I, I hope so. Let's make this bigger. Okay. Now Yahweh said to Abram, leave your country and your relatives and your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. So not even just like a holiday. It's like leave behind everything that defines you, you know, your family, your culture, your home, everything that you are familiar with, you know, your favorite coffee shop, you know, even like, you know, just hearing people speak the same language as you do and go to this foreign land that God will show. He doesn't even tell you tell him where. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who treats you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you, God says to Abram. So Abram went, verse 4. He went, just like that, you know, out of obedience, as Yahweh had told him. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, good thing, <laughs> not to leave her behind, but took his whole family there, took Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions that he had gathered, all the people whom they had acquired in Haran. This was a big move. You know, it just shows that he could have stayed. He could have been really, really comfortable, but in obedience to God's command, but also that promise of blessing, something even greater than what he had right now. Um, they, they went into the land of Canaan. They entered into the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, Canaanites were in the land. There were other people there. God says, I'm going to give you this land, but they're, you know, it's like, I'm going to give you this house. There are people living there. <laughs> um, Yahweh appeared to Abram, Abram, verse 7, and said, I will give you give this land to your offspring. He built an altar there to Yahweh, who had appeared to him. He left from there to go to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to Yahweh and called on Yahweh's name. Abram traveled, still going on toward the south. There was a famine in the land. Abram went down into Egypt to live as a foreigner there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he had come near to, to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, 
I know that you are a beautiful woman to look at. It will happen that when the Egyptians see you, they will say, "This is his wife." They will kill me, <laughs> but they will save you alive. Please say that you are my sister, that it will be well with me for your sake, and that my soul may live because of you. When Abram had come into Egypt, Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh saw her and praised her to Yah. Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He dealt with Abram for her sake. He had sheep, cattle, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and animals and camels. Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Pharaoh called Abram and said, "What is this that you've done to me?" Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now, therefore, see your wife, take her, and go your way. Pharaoh commanded men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife, with all that he had. So, quite a mixed bag, this Abram, this guy.、Uh, by the way, his name means father. Later on, he will change his name to God. Will change his name to Abraham. That's the name we are more familiar with. But here he starts out as the name Father, and later on gets the name Abraham, which means Father of many. At the heart of this blessing is descendants, many descendants,、um, a son, and many sons.、Um, which is why、um, when God says, "I will make you a Great nation,、um, that would have been very special for him to have lots and so many sons,、um, and to be able to bless other families with other sons through his family.、Um, so it starts out with Abram receiving this command, receiving this blessing, and obeying God's command, God's word, and going all the way to this foreign place, stepping out in faith, bringing his whole family with him. But almost immediately, he leaves that place because of this tragedy that hit the land, famine, and so he goes down south to Egypt, where he does this thing that you're, you know, why does he do this? Why does he do this? He almost tells his wife to act as if she isn't,、uh, and he does this because he's afraid for his own life. And all this while, you know, what happens is,、um, I mean, he's right. They see how attractive his wife is. Recommend her to Pharaoh of all people. He takes her to be his wife, and、um, you know he gets money. You know he gets possessions. Pharaoh rewards him, but in the process, you know he compromises that integrity. You know you kind of wonder what kind of guy this Abram is. He probably isn't that perfect. That kind of guy whom you know. I don't know. You would think would be that perfect model of obedience and having that integrity, because you know he kind of sells out his wife.、Um, interesting thing, though.、Um, no, we were left to make this kind of、um, conclusion ourselves. It doesn't say that he did this bad thing.、Uh, if anything, God kind of like steps in and punishes Pharaoh.、Uh, surprisingly, Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh with great plagues. So God is like protecting him, and you kind of go, why doesn't God punish Abram? He doesn't. He punishes Pharaoh. Pharaoh, on the other hand, acts quite, you know, quite surprisingly. I mean, he has integrity. What's this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me this? And Pharaoh doesn't punish Abram, maybe because he's afraid of God, but maybe because also Pharaoh is not the kind of person that. You know, Abram thought he would be, so he lets him go. He command Pharaoh commands the man, the men to escort him away to kick him out, but also to let him keep all that he had. So kind of a mixed bag. Abram, on the one hand, being very obedient, he worships God, obeys God, but on the other hand, he isn't a man of great integrity when it comes to the way that he treats his own wife, the way that he lives before other men. Um, so, yeah, interesting guy.
And it just goes to show that the Bible is、uh, very realistic about human nature, very realistic about grace that God pours out on people who don't necessarily earn it, do anything to deserve it, but it's God who's gracious, God who gives this promise of blessing, a tremendous blessing, make Abraham a great nation,、uh, bless him with,、um, and bless all nations through him. But it says a lot more about God. Than it does about us. That's Genesis chapter 12. And I'm, I, I, I am sleepy. Yeah, so I'm sorry if not, none of this is like coming together is like kind of random. Like,、oh, what's he saying? I don't know either. I was about to say that I'll have to go back and you know, listen to this later on, but I never do. <laughs> There's so many. I was thinking, wow, you know, we've been doing this for like two months, and every day an hour, and every day four passages. That's a lot of Bible. Maybe one day. Like、um, when I'm sleeping, I just play on a loop. I have no idea what I say actually every day. And so、um, I do feel for you. If, if you've never watched this before, you must, and you've maybe just tuned in right at this moment and be going, what was this guy doing? So weird. It is quite weird. Genesis chapter 12. <laughs> oh, and it's only Monday. Oh, it's funny how Friday didn't feel like Friday. But now Monday really feels like Monday.、Oh, yeah. Okay, Matthew chapter 11. When Jesus had finished directing his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you he who comes, or should we look for another? Hmm. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is he who finds no occasion for stumbling in me. Let, me. let me look at this again. John was in prison. So he is hearing about all the things that Jesus is doing. And he sends his disciples to go to Jesus and say, Um, Have I got the wrong idea about you? And that, you know, he hears everything that Jesus is doing. He's healing the sick. He is doing all these miracles. But John seems to have doubts. And especially now when he's being thrown in prison, almost to say, you know, here I am, you know, suffering. You know, I, I spoke out for you. I had all these expectations about you. But now when I'm paying this price, you know, Have I got things wrong about you? Essentially, that's the question that he sends、um, his disciples to ask Jesus. Are you the one that, 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 that I said you, who would be coming, the one who is supposed to be the Christ from God? Or, you know, maybe I'm supposed to look up for someone else? And Jesus essentially says to him, you know, look at the evidence. You know, it's a fulfillment here. You know, World English Bible very helpfully gives us a reference, a fulfillment of Isaiah. You know, that there is this new age that comes with healing. You know, the deaf are able, able to hear, the blind can see, the、um, what else?、Uh, lame can walk, lepers are cleansed,、um, dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So there is this new age of this kingdom that's coming. But maybe what's missing is this new government, this maybe judgment. That the new age is supposed to, to bring along with it. You know, all the enemies are supposed to be destroyed, and Israel is supposed to be this new kingdom that rises above all other kingdoms. But Jesus says, Well, I guess it's like a package deal. You know, this is the first bit that comes, and, you know, this is enough to signify that. Uh, so, in the positive, Jesus is saying the signs are there. It, it, it's coming. It's coming. It's not all here yet, but this bit, the first bit, whereby there's life, there is renewal, there's healing, you know, that is part of that package. It is the starting of this full kingdom. But at the same time, you know, John, you know, you need to be patient and, you know, keep on trusting. Blessed is he who finds no occasion for stumbling. In me. I think in some of the translations, I can't remember what. I think he who is not offended by me. It means almost to say,、um, don't, don't let that disappointment turn you away from keeping on trusting, from keeping on going. 
And that's just so helpful. I think sometimes when we are genuinely looking forward to God doing something to change this world, and we are genuinely trusting and we're suffering even for that, for that trust, but still it doesn't quite line up with our expectations. And this is, this is John, John of all people we're talking about, John the Baptist who could see and cry something that no one else could see. And yet even he doubted, even he had his questions, and even he had to be encouraged by Jesus. Verse 7, as they went on their way, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, okay, all right, so Jesus has more to say. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and much more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I sent my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Most certainly, I tell you, among those who are born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the baptizer. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the baptizer until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you're willing to receive it, this is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Of all women, all those born of women, Jesus says, of basically every humankind, every person in existence, you know, compared to Abraham, compared to Moses, you know, that's the kind of magnitude just compared to everyone that came before John the baptizer he's the greatest no one has been greater than him he he is in this position of privilege that no one else had including the prophets including the kings including anyone and everyone in all of existence and yet the least in the kingdom is greater than he you you know yeah if if you are in the kingdom if you're a christian you are you have a privilege and a greatness that's the word that jesus uses you are greater than john the baptist and everyone before that and therefore greatness is here pictured in terms of contact with christ connection being able to see the dots connect the dots to jesus you know john he wasn't able to see the full thing and he was the one who proclaimed Christ. He was the, the Elijah who prepared the way, prepared the hearts, calling people to repentance before the coming of Christ. But we who understand that connection, who are able to see him as the suffering Christ, be able to understand the cross, you are greater than John. There's a certain weight to that. There's something really amazing to be able to be on this side of history, to be able to read you know, we just read the Old Testament, be able to read the New Testament to see its fulfillment in Jesus, to be able to not doubt in a way that all God can say is wait, wait for it, wait for it, it's coming, it's coming, but to be able to have the full picture you know, laid out before us just like that. There is tremendous privilege and greatness and blessing in that, that you have right now simply because uh, you were born now that you were born after the cross, that you have the New Testament witness before you, that you can have access to the Bible, you can read it for yourself, you can reread it and go back to it and understand it and see the full picture. Verse 16, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call their companions and say, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned for you and you didn't lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. There's a rebuke here. What shall I compare this generation? Here as well, it picks up from here. What do you go out to see? And it's saying that people are critics. I guess, you know, John and Jesus were as night and day, very different. John 
was this guy who um, didn't eat, didn't drink. You know, he has a demon. Jesus ate and drank. You know, he has a demon. <laughs> oh, right. He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Um, it's saying we often find whatever excuse we want to uh, not based on the evidence because here are both extremes and we find reasons to reject both whether it's fasting or feasting you know whether it's John or it's Jesus in inherently the reason why we don't respond and we don't accept any of the claims any it's because here it's interesting wisdom is justified by her children let's see what it says by her actions yeah that, that's the more um, that's the translation I'm more familiar with it's the idea that wisdom is acted out you know something if you take action in that sense and therefore it's saying that the people who don't respond are people who don't want to do anything about what they've heard and seen so that's why we play the fruit for you, didn't dance, we mourn for you, didn't lament. That means whatever call that you hear, whether it's to mourn, you don't want it. I don't want to do anything, essentially. That's, that's our position in life. We don't want to have to feel compelled. We don't want to respond. We, we, we don't mind whatever things show. It's, it's like watching a movie. But if that movie suddenly says, okay, now, all right, what are you going to do about it? We turn it off. Yeah. So wisdom is justified by her actions. This is a gospel that you can't just, you know, you just open up this gospel, open up this Bible, and then you read it, read it, and then say, um, okay, right, that's it. And you don't want to do anything about it. There is an action, there's a call to repentance. And uh, Jesus is saying, um, maybe this condemnation against those who just maybe just read and read and read and, you know, hear and hear and hear and just don't want to do anything about it. Verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, so Chorazin, Bethsaida, Jewish cities, Tyre and Sidon are Gentile cities, which were done in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. You know, you think of, um, I don't know, say a church here in Cambridge. You know, we have the best pastors, best preaching, but say for academic reasons. Uh, I'm not saying this against any church, but say no one repents. <laughs> say, uh, after, you know, yesterday we probably had, you know, good sermons preached. You know, I have no doubt that it was really, really good preaching of the gospel yesterday. But imagine if yesterday, the whole of yesterday, after all that preparation, all that preaching, no one repented. No one responded to the gospel. And Jesus is saying, if the same preachers had been sent to some nowhere, Blakang, uh, sorry, Blakang, <laughs> Malay for in the back of your house and, and near the Longkang there, you know, some remote place that had never heard the gospel before, you know, if these works of Jesus had been displayed in Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And it shows us the danger of privilege maybe of having all this blessing and you know, exposure to the Bible, but just not wanting to do anything about it. And Jesus says there's condemnation in that. Verse 22, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. The you here is talking about Jewish cities, about people who've seen maybe even firsthand Jesus do his miracles, heard his teaching firsthand. You, Capernaum, who are exalted to the heaven, you will go down to Hades, go down to hell. For if the mighty works had been done in Sodom, which were done in you, it would have remained until today. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Again, I can't help but think of all these evangelical centers of the world. Um, you know, you think of, uh, I maybe shouldn't name names. You know, if I mention like a city like New York, you know what? Church is associated, associated there. Cambridge, you know, there are there are all these like obvious churches that you go to. If you go to Cambridge, you have to go to that church because it's very very good. And here Jesus is saying, if the same things had been done in a non-Cambridge city, in a non-New York city, you know, they would have repented. And is it the case that maybe we here are just hardening our hearts for the day of judgment? Hmm. 
Verse 25, At that time Jesus answered, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for so it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and neither does anyone know the Father except the Son and he whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, sorry, gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah, neither need, to hear that. I'm tired in more ways than one, not just because of work today, but um, yeah, um, I think not just wanting to have that holiday, wanting to have that break, but just coming back to Jesus and um, knowing that it's only Him that can give me that fulfillment, that refreshment, that rest. Knowing that as I come to him, he puts on me his yoke, which is like a burden, which is light and easy because he carries that burden. But still, it is a yoke. It is from him. And I guess, you know, just a reminder, reminder for me personally, you know, to keep coming back to Jesus, um, especially in here in this word, you know, do a lot of saying, talking like to you and talking to the camera. But this is really... Uh, really an exercise by which, you know, I need to be coming to Jesus, need to be hearing his word to myself. Um, yeah. If it's if it applies to you, then good for you as well. But at least this is for me. Uh, something very, very relevant, very helpful. Next passage, Nehemiah chapter 1. New book. Ah, okay. Picking up from Ezra. So Ezra returned for exile. Nehemiah also returned from exile. So it's connected chronologically speaking, thematically speaking. They have been exiled in Babylon and they are moving back to the promised land. Chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Okay. Now in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the palace, Hanani, 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 one of my brothers came he and certain men out of Judah. Don't ask me to read the Bible in church, by the way. I always get all these names wrong. And I will pause at the names because I'll be wondering if I, if I said them wrongly. Uh, and I asked about them, them about the Jews who had escaped, who, had left, who were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant who are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. I shouldn't be smiling when I say this. He's probably really serious. Oh, the remnant is left. You know, they're, they're in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. It's Hotama. Yeah. So um, again, this is in Babylon. He's far away from the city. His thoughts are thinking of back home. And this is like the worst thing you could hear. You know, this fire has been destroyed, you know. Um, more likely though, I mean, this is describing the situation that is still there. So, um, Nehemiah is what, 12, 13 years after Ezra and, um, it's describing how the wall had not yet been rebuilt. So it was broken down. Um, and during the time when you were exiled, they were kicked out of the promised land and, and transported to Babylon. But this is describing then it's been in disrepair. You know, it's just been in this state and no one has repaired it. Um, and But I think it makes it worse because after all this time, after all these years, you know, it's still uh, been stuck in as this kind of slum situation. Verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned several days and I fasted and prayed before God, the God of heaven. And I said, I beg you, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open, that you may listen to the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you at this time, day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, while I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. 
Yes, I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I beg you, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you trespass, I will scatter you among, you, among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts were in the uttermost parts of the heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to cause my name to dwell there. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Lord, I beg you, let your ear be attentive now to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And please, Prosper your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Mm. He prays. Half the chapter is really just about uh, Nehemiah bowing down and praying before God. Um, hmm. Okay. Oh, so tired. Okay, so he... He doesn't immediately take action. You know, he hears that there's this tragedy. He doesn't say, okay, we need to raise money and go and send money to them. He doesn't do any of that. And that's surprising because when he does decide to do something, i.e. he prays, he doesn't say, God, please repair the wall. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he confesses his sin before God as if, you know, he is part of the problem. I confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you. Yeah, you hear tragedy happening, ha happening halfway across the world and you say to God, I'm sorry, Lord, because this is your judgment upon me and upon your people. Because when we sinned, you know, our fathers sinned, you know, I'm part of that family and part of that, that judgment. And therefore, I'm claiming your promises that if we all turn away from our sin and we turn back to you, you will bless us. This is a kind of perspective that uh, takes us out of ourselves, out of even the moment, and sees things from God's um, viewpoint that God is willing to forgive, willing to, to bless, but not just bless you and me because you know we did this great thing like we prayed for that situation, but that we are not distancing ourselves from the problem so that when there is a solution there is a blessing we are able to share you know whatever solution whatever blessing that god gives all of us together there's a kind of perspective you see and you see it in basically all the prayers whether it's um ezra as well you know ezra when he saw the unfaithfulness of the people in Israel, he's he just mourned the entire day and he treated it like his own sin same here in nehemiah um, so that's that's surprising, you know. It, um, I guess prayer is probably the most significant action you can take. I guess. Mm. Yeah, I'm. I I confess, I'm not like this. I tend to like, you know, problem solve. You know, you have a problem, say, okay, what can we do about it? That's not. That's just not dilly dally, you know. But here is a kind of prayer that isn't functional, isn't either. You know, sometimes you want to raise money like for a church uh, building and you have prayer meetings. And what's the prayer meeting about? God, give us money. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't that true? Someone's sick, have a prayer meeting. God, please heal that person. And very rarely, you know, will you say, you know, God, I think uh, we are in this trouble because, you know, we're sinful. We need your forgiveness. We need your favor. And please, can you bless us? You know, you're always identifying with the problem. If the person has an illness, you say, you know, it's it's my sin as well. And so when God does bring that blessing, it's not just heal that situation, fix that wall, but, you know, bring us back to you and bring us back to, and with that comes all the blessings of fellowship and forgiveness. But it's ultimately that perspective again, that the biggest thing, most important thing we need is a reconciled relationship with God. And so he prays that, you know, um, I beg you the word that you commanded Moses, if you trespass, I will scatter you. But if you return to me, you keep my commandments, I will gather you. 
So again, that picture of scattering and gathering. God scattering is always a curse. God gathering is always a blessing. That's why um, it's the foundation of the church. You know, a church is really just a gathered people of God. And it gathers them around Christ, gathers them around His Word. And therefore, it's a sign of blessing whenever people are able to come together, you know, as God's people. And that's what he, he prays for towards that end. But there's this, this little addendum as well towards the end. Um, Let your ear be attentive. Give me mercy in the sight of this man. And then immediately says, I'll cupbearer to the king. <laughs> so he is praying, 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 praying. And at the back of his mind, he says, okay, I need to do something to approach this man, my boss. <laughs> and he's about to ask his boss, the king, for favor. Um, and uh, he starts by asking God for his favor. Yeah. And we'll see more of that tomorrow at Nehemiah chapter 2. I am so thirsty. How are you? I know I say that every time, but I do mean it. But you can't answer. So please don't answer to the screen. You sound so like crazy person. But, you know, I like to, I, I like to imagine that uh, I'm talking to someone. I try to imagine some of the people I know in church when I do these readings as if I'm talking to them. And what I would say to them, I would ask them, um, more specific things. I don't want to do this through this because then, you know, you reveal who they are. But if, you know, I know that they're going a certain thing, certain situation, I ask, you know, how are you doing with that thing, that situation? Um, you know, I wonder if God has responded in any way um, to that situation. I wonder if, you know, passages like this helps you to pray for that situation, whether it's something that's happening at work you know, you're having that trouble with your boss, you know, maybe praying for favor, that would be a good thing to do. Uh, maybe you have, you're praying for someone else. Someone told you something really bad and serious and you're just wondering how to pray for that. And maybe identifying with that situation, maybe even with that sin, you know, not prejudging them, but saying, you know, wow, that's bad. You know, I'm, I'm tempted to do the same thing and praying towards that regard. That's helpful. That's what Nehemiah does here. Yeah. Mm. Ah, okay, last reading for today. Um, Acts chapter 11. Please don't be a long one. <laughs> so tired. Now the apostles and the brothers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter had come up to Jerusalem, those who were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain container descending like it was a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners. It came as far as me. When I had looked intently at it, I considered and saw the four-footed animals of the earth, wild animals, creeping things, and birds of the sky. I also heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. But a voice answered me the second time out of heaven, what God has cleansed, don't you call unclean. This was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. Behold, immediately three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent from Caesarea to me. The Spirit told me to go with them without discriminating. These six brothers also uh, accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying to him, Send to Joppa and get Simon, who is called Peter, who will speak to you words by which you will be saved, you and all your house. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, even as on us at the beginning. I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized in water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
if then God gave to them the same gift as us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Hmm. When you're thinking about how the gospel crosses this boundary of Jew to Gentile, um, often we use that picture of insider and outsider, how we need to, you know, break open walls, you know, get the gospel out there, you know, there, and it sounds like an expansion program or a franchise program. You have one franchise of McDonald's and then you have many franchises of McDonald's around the country. And it's like, you know, think bigger, think mission. Do Can I just say that it's not that? You know, when, when you're crossing this border of Jew and Gentile, you should need to think North and South Korea, that kind of, that kind of border. It's a border of friend and enemy. It's not just thinking bigger, you know, don't just think of your church in this, oh, expand your church. It's not that. The reason why the gospel had not yet crossed over the Gentiles is not because they didn't think bigger or they were hesitant about whether they could do it or not. It's because they didn't want to. These were the last people they would have wanted to invite it to their church or even want them to come into God's kingdom. That's why when Peter goes back home, he gets into trouble. Get this. It's not that they're asking him, oh, what's this interesting thing that happened? They told him, you did this bad thing. You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. And, and so in their minds, Peter had done something really, really bad. He'd broken God's law. And, you know, Peter had to explain himself, but he does this in a very... Um, I wanted to say loving way, but actually all he does is he explains it as it is. He, he, you see how faithful it is? He, it's so boring for us to read because we read the exact same thing yesterday. But he just basically outlines everything that God did from his perspective, but also from Cornelius. And he ends by talking about how God poured out the Holy Spirit on them. And he says here, as us, God gave them the exact same gift as us. And he uses words like not discriminating. It's saying how we discriminate, but God doesn't. How we might withhold this gift, but God gives them the exact same gift. It's not comparing me and you, whether you are someone like me or you are not someone like me. When we are dis disagreeing, we often say who has the higher, higher position, who is right, who is wrong. But no, he's talking about God and us. We discriminate. God does not. We hold it back. God gives to all. And I think that's a very helpful perspective when you're talking to someone who's disagreeing with you, especially on matters to do with God. They're claiming that you've broken God's laws. You've done something that's wrong, that, you know, that offends God. And maybe that might be the case, and you need to have the humility in order to reflect upon that. But in this case, you know, Peter doesn't get defensive. He doesn't say, you guys are idiots. You know, I've seen the light you haven't. You know, he says, you know, I was discriminating as well. God opened my eyes. God helped me to see things from his perspective so that maybe you can do the same. And notice their response. They glorified God and they say God has also granted or gifted or given to the Gentiles this repentance unto life. So it's not just us and having more of us or going bigger or going you know, abroad. Uh, and mission isn't just that. You know, it's going to the people whom you don't want to go to, your enemies, the people whom you're almost avoiding. And that's mission. That's God's mission of bringing the gospel to the true outsider, the person who you would not want to come in here, who doesn't want to come here. God goes to them and God sends you to them. And we'll see that more in, in the second half of this chapter, I think, I hope. <laughs> Verse 19, they therefore who were scattered abroad by the oppression that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews only. But there were some men, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists or Greek-speaking people 
preaching the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The report concerning them came to the ears of the assembly, which was in Jerusalem. They sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch, who, when he had come and had seen the grace of God, was glad. He exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should remain near to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and many people were added to the Lord. Good guy, Barnabas. Yeah, actually, he, he really deserves that moniker, that uh, nickname, Son of Encouragement. Because he encourages, he's that good news person. You know, he goes around, you hear good news about Jesus, and you hear good news from him. You know, he, he, he encouraged them all. He, he's able to see things from God's perspective. He had seen the grace of God. And he there's a certain kind of joy that comes with people like that. You know, just being able to see things from God's perspective and just give thanks. And you feel like doing the same thing. Good guy. I mean, this kind of person, um, you like to be like an uncle that hangs around in church. You know, he's always able to help you say, hey, you know, my God did that. You know, let's give thanks for that. Really good guy. Verse 25, Barnabas uh, went out to Tarsus to look for Saul. Ah, okay. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they were gathered together with the assembly and taught many people. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. How about that? Yeah. Okay, now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there should be a great famine all over the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius. As any of the disciples had plenty, each determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea, which they also did, sending it to these elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Interesting, interesting. Barnabas, what what possessed him to do this thing? You know, he was doing fine. You know, he was there almost like that pastor. He was there teaching them, exhorting them. But he goes out of his way to bring Saul. And maybe because, you know, Saul was this scholar who was also, you know, he had, um, he was obviously very well versed in Greek. He was a Roman um, a citizen, and so we can tell later on from his uh, preaching. But no, actually, earlier on we saw him arguing with the Hellenists as well, right? So actually, he he was very adept at that kind of culture. So this, yeah, yeah, that's right. This would have been perfect for some like Saul to help them grow. And I think it says a lot about Barnabas that he saw that need, kind of like connected two and two. Here are these Greek-speaking Christians in Antioch. Here is this Greek-speaking. Jew in uh, in Tarsus, let's connect the two. And as a result, you know, they taught many people, they gathered together with the assembly, essentially the church, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's something. And the idea of belonging to Christ, the idea of uh, these people were so... so it, we, now we, we just use that word so, so normal. I'm a Christian, you're a Christian because we believe in Christ. But there was a time when they didn't use that name. You know, maybe it wasn't that they decided, oh, we're going to call ourselves this. But rather here were people who were either speaking about Christ so much, Christ, 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 or behaving like Christ so much. That guy is really like Jesus, you know, that other people called them Christians in this particular city of Antioch. Um, what else can we say? Saul is, Saul is an interesting guy. I think, really, I, I have to think about this more, but why is it that Barnabas didn't go and get Peter <laughs> to, to, to teach them, to stay with them? Maybe because Peter was, was based in Jerusalem. He knew he would never leave. Or maybe because he knew that Saul was... was um, was uh, was available and he was able to do this. But I think if you think of Saul as that in-between guy, Saul, later on his name is Paul, you know, he is Jewish, yes, but he used to persecute the Jews. 
he can speak Greek, yes, but he's not actually Greek. He's still Jew. So it's kind of like in between. And he's kind of like perfect for that kind of bridge. Not because he would appeal to both, but he would be hated by both, if that makes sense. I mean, he's this guy who used to persecute you, used to throw your uncle into jail, used to kill people. And he's now the main means by which God is going to use to reach the Gentiles. And here is this, he is coming to the Greeks, this Greek, but he's actually from over there. You know, he looks different from you. You know, he sounds different from you. He isn't actually one of you. And he's telling you about this God that you've never heard before. And I think God tends to do it that way in terms of mission. Mission isn't just about you reaching your friend who is like you, likes the same movies as you. So you can talk about movies and you can talk about Christianity as well. But oftentimes mission is seen when someone who is completely unlike you. Again, think about that North-South Korea divide. Think about that friend-enemy divide. Someone who you would naturally hate, but then introducing you to a God who loves you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I have to think about that some more, you know, which is maybe something, maybe maybe it's not nothing there, but I just, I just don't know. I think just think it's really interesting, interesting that Barnabas gets thrown into the picture and then he brings in Saul. And as a result, they send, well, they send Saul and Barnabas back to, to uh, Judea to bring money because here was this church in Antioch worried about the church back in Jerusalem. So they send back monies to help with, um, with this famine that apparently is about to happen. Yeah. Okay, so, yep, let's end. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, these enemies who become friends, <laughs> who become pastors, who become teachers and encourage the church and plant it in Antioch. Thank you so much that uh, we can see this in the Bible. I pray that we can see this in our own lives, that we're not just friends making more enemies, but um, how wonderful it is if the people whom we consider our enemies, you know, people whom we don't like, we don't get along with. But because of Christ, we went close to them, we spoke to them this message of peace, and we became brothers, we became family, we became sons and daughters in Christ. I think that would be really amazing. And that would be um, really mission, I think. I, I wonder if maybe we should see that more as our mission here in church, not just finding like-minded people, but reaching out to people we haven't yet even considered. And getting help from avenues like people like Saul, who we've never even considered, to just think of how you can receive all the glory. That none of this is our plans, none of this is our efforts, but it's constantly your grace working in this world. And help us to have eyes like Barnabas to be able to see your grace and to be filled by joy when that glory all goes to you. Uh, thank you for today's reading. Um, I do sincerely say sorry for all the randomness and I thank you for your grace in sustaining me thank you for your that word as well from Jesus that to come to you uh, and when we are weary when we are broken and to find rest and fulfillment and joy in Jesus I want to do that right now pray that for my brothers and sisters as well uh, pray this in Jesus name Amen have a good day goodbye